It's good to see everyone. I'm glad you made it through the snow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for being our great creator, for being a God who makes things as magnificent as snowflakes, and also the God who redeemed us and saved us even though we sinned against you. And we thank you for our mutual salvation. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in freedom to study your word, and we ask that you would open up it to us today so that we may learn more about you, we may be conformed to your image, that we may not sin against you, and we may live holy and righteous lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as you can see, we're in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, and in this chapter, Paul is going to begin a defense of his apostolic authority. And it's interesting, I had a good conversation with somebody here before the class, and he had mentioned that, you know, it's interesting that it's not incumbent upon Paul in any way to defend himself. He is an apostle, whether we believe it or not. But nonetheless, isn't it interesting how merciful God is that even his servants whom he has chosen condescend themselves and actually will defend their right as an apostle for our sake? The reason why Paul is defending the fact that he is an apostle isn't for Paul's sake per se. He's an apostle. There's no question about that. He's defending himself for the sake of the Corinthians because if the Corinthians reject his apostolic authority... They're dead in the water. They don't have the teaching from God, and therefore they're on the road to perdition. And so Paul is actually fighting for their very salvation by defending his apostolic authority. Let me talk about interpreting 1 Corinthians 9. There's really two approaches to this whole chapter. The first approach is this. It says Paul is giving the Corinthians a model to follow. That is, Paul, instead of using his rights, as the Corinthians did in eating idol food, he, go, he forgoes his rights as an apostle so that he might save some. So this would be the idea of, remember that term exousia? And we'll, I'll be showing you that again today. It has to do with authority. The Corinthians are boasting in their authority. And they were saying, well, we have such authority and knowledge that we can eat anything we want. And they didn't care that it was causing a weaker brother or sister to stumble. Well, what Paul does is he goes in in 1 Corinthians 9, and this idea or this view, this interpretive view would say, Paul is saying, look at all of the authority I have to do the things that I can do, and yet I don't do them, even though I am an apostle for the sake of the gospel. And certainly I think there's actually elements of truth in this view. However, I think number two is probably better, and that is Paul is defending his authority as an apostle. That's the primary thing that he's doing that has come under attack in two primary ways. First, the Corinthian opposition pressed Paul on the notion of Christian liberty. In other words, we can eat what we want, you yourself said so. Remember, the Corinthians were the ones who were boasting that they could eat anything they want, and they probably got that from Paul because Paul had explained to them earlier on, more than likely, that the food laws were no longer binding. And so they took that and they ran with it, and then they even applied it to themselves so that they could eat in the temple, food that was sacrificed to idols. That's the idea. Well, second, they were turning Paul's refusal to receive pay against himself. Again, if Paul really were an apostle, they would reason we should be paying him. And so here, Paul does something, namely he doesn't receive pay. It's for their benefit so that they won't think, well, Paul is only preaching the gospel to us so that he would get monetary gain. Paul forgoes his pay so that there's no... There can be no claim that he's merely doing this for financial reward, and yet then they hold it against him. Well, if you're really an apostle, you'd be getting paid. Hence, you must not be an apostle. How ironic. 
And more than likely, that's what's going on. Let me give you some evidence that number two is probably the best, although there may be elements of number one as well, and I'll point that out as we go. But let me just show you, I think the evidence clearly supports number two. First of all, Paul has to address the theological attack that was launched against him. Remember in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, it said, Now concerning, remember that was the Perry day, things sacrificed to idols, we know we all have knowledge. Well, what they're saying is that we know that we can eat whatever we want, and Paul has to say, well, yes, you have that knowledge, but don't let that knowledge cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. So in other words, Paul is agreeing with them as far as it goes. Yes, we have knowledge that an idol is nothing, but don't take that knowledge and cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. Okay, so he has to correct them to say, yeah, in some sense you're right, but if you had true knowledge, you'd actually love. And so they're, they don't have knowledge as they ought to. That's the problem. It's a theological problem. First Corinthians 8.8, 8, he said, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. In other words, again, that was Paul agreeing with the Corinthians. You're right. Food doesn't commend us to God. You're right in that. However, to take that liberty and now partake in a meal to the demons, he's going to get into that issue in 1 Corinthians 10. They're abusing their authority. That's the problem. And so it's a theological issue. And so you're going to see Paul defend himself starting in chapter 9 and going through chapter 10. Financial support, that attack is addressed as well. And we have evidence that this was a real issue actually in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 13, where Paul said, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. And I think the idea that Paul is saying there is, boy, uh, if you think that that's bad, that I would reject financial gain, that's pathetic. I did it so that the gospel would not be hindered in any way. And yet they were holding that against him. So again, I think in the scriptures themselves we see evidence that, yes, Paul in chapter 9 has to defend his apostolic authority. He wasn't merely just giving an example to follow. He's defending his apostolic authority because if they reject that, then they're going to go down the road of apostasy and heresy. That's the problem. So let's get into the first two verses here. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 2. Paul says, he asks two questions right up front that are rhetorical, or actually four. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship, in the Lord. Notice these first two questions that he asks. It's interesting to me to see Paul's structure and how he answers the objections of the Corinthians and how he sets this up. Remember in Matthew 24 when we studied that passage a few weeks ago, there was what's called a chiastic structure where the first question is asked, then there's a second question, and the second question is addressed first by Matthew. In, in Matthew 24, the same thing is actually seen here, I think, in 1 Corinthians. Let me explain. This is the structure of Paul's response. He asked the question, am I not free? Right here. And then he asks, am I not an apostle? Right here. And then he answers this question first. I am an apostle. That's verses 1 through 14. And then when you get to verses 15 through 23, he's answering this question, I am free. And so I think that that's how his response is structured. And it's interesting The more I see these little structures, the New Testament writers were far better than I am. (laughs) I never, I never formed any of my papers in, uh, in college in a chiastic way, okay? But nonetheless, that's how he structures his argument, I think. Now, let me just show you a few other things here. 
in this, these two verses. First of all, notice these knots. Well, literally, it's ooh in the Greek, but there's a knot here. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Remember the Corinthians boasted in rhetoric? And a lot of the rhetoricians of the day, they would use rhetorical questions. That's where you get the term rhetoric, okay? And a rhetorical question always has an obvious or implied answer. Well, what's interesting is anytime you have this knot that you'll see here, and this will help you interpret the scriptures wherever you read them, when that's used with a rhetorical question, it always expects a positive answer. And so the idea then is when he says, am I not free? Well, of course he is. That's the, uh, the implied answer that's obvious. Am I not an apostle? Well, it expects a, a positive answer. Well, of course he's an apostle. That's what he's driving at. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Well, of course he has. Are you not my work in the Lord? Well, of course you are. And so what he's doing is he's laying down a case where they can't do anything but agree with him. So that's how rhetoric works. And again, anytime you see the not, it implies a positive answer. Notice where he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And he says, for you are the seal of my apostleship. This idea of Jesus being seen by Paul and the fact that the Corinthians were actually his work in the Lord is supreme evidence that, in fact, Paul is an apostle. So again, they had, Paul had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And according to, remember, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he said that he was the last to see him. He was the one who was uh, who had seen the Lord Jesus raised from the dead as one who was untimely born. Remember that? And it's interesting in the Greek context there in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, when he says, I was the last to see him. Let me, in fact, let me turn to it. I want to make sure I read it to you correctly. It implies the idea that Paul was the last in a series. And that's important to us because I think it gives us great evidence or ammunition to use to the world that claim that the apostles are still continuing today. We can use this verse and say, no, there's evidence from the text itself that no, Paul regarded the apostleship, that is the office of apostle, is finished. Yeah, he says right here in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, and he says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This idea of last of all is often used for the last in a series. And so, therefore, it's great evidence that Paul regarded himself as the last of the apostles, okay? And, of course, he was untimely born because he didn't see the resurrected Lord until later on the road to Damascus that we see in Acts chapter 9. But what's interesting is many, in fact, we see in 1 Corinthians 15, there was over 500 people that were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And yet, why are they not all apostles? Well, because not all of them were commissioned to be apostles, And that's the point that I think Paul's making here is you are the seal. In other words, your work is proof positive that I own the apostleship. In other words, I am the owner of being an apostle. The idea of having a seal upon you would be the idea that um, you are owned or there's ownership by the king, okay? And whatever document it is, that document is owned by the king. So the point is they were the seal that, in fact, Paul was an apostle. It was proof indeed. So that's, I think, two big pieces of evidence that Paul was indeed an apostle. Now, this other term that I want to look at here in red is apostolase, and it's only used four times in the New Testament. Every single time, it has to do with the office of apostle. Okay, so that's a little bit different than apostolos. Apostolase, notice the difference in pronunciation. Apostolase always has to do with the office. Apostolos often has to do with the office. However, sometimes it can mean just a mere messenger. 
Okay, so clearly by him using apostles, he's referring to the office itself, which only someone who has seen the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead can in fact hold. That's why I think he's raising it there. Okay, now, continuing on into verses 3 through 6, Paul has the rights of an apostle. He continues to defend himself. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Notice this term, right. I think this is a play on words. And again, friends, I think this may be one reason why we can say there is some truth to the notion that Paul is comparing the way the Corinthians are abusing their supposed authority and rights that they have from their supposedly superior knowledge. And Paul is juxtaposing that. In other words, he's comparing that with the rights or authority that he has. But in fact, his authority that comes from his knowledge, he doesn't always use. Why? Because it may be a hindrance to the gospel. That's why. And so the idea then is this right uh, is, again, authority. Remember in 1 Corinthians 8 9, it says, but take care that this right, that is exousia, authority of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So Paul had every right, and it was, it was true theologically that he had every right to take a believing wife, to eat and drink, to be supported by the Corinthians, but he doesn't do it. So no one could ever claim he went to the, he walked the extra mile, let's put it that way, so that no one could say that he ever preached the gospel for financial gain. So the Corinthians, all they could do is they could say, well, yeah, this guy preached the gospel freely to us. And so I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's defending himself. The other thing I want to point out here is notice it says we. Paul is referring to himself in in some sense or his uh, partner Barnabas as we. What's interesting is it seems to me that Paul's apostolic authority um, has an umbrella, as it were. So in other words, because Barnabas is with Paul, he is in some sense wrapped under the umbrella of Paul's apostolic authority. So the idea is where Paul goes and his helpers go, they also fall under the umbrella of not the apostle in the sense that they, in fact, were called by God to be the personal spokesman, but rather they're wrapped into the ministry so they can partake in the benefits of it. And I think we see evidence of this, for instance, in Acts 14.14, where it says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. Now, again, this term here is apostolos. And oftentimes it's used for the office of apostle, but sometimes it can be used also for the mere idea of being sent out, okay, a sent out one. Well, here it's interesting is I think that this passage here in 1 Corinthians 9 gives us evidence that the reason why Barnabas is called an apostle is because he's so intricately involved with Paul. That's why Paul uses the we. So again, it's not the idea that Barnabas was set apart from the foundation of the world to be a personal spokesman for God, but rather he was chosen by God to be so intimately associated with Paul that he is under Paul's umbrella as apostle. That's how I think I would understand that. And so therefore, if someone were to say, well, Barnabas is for sure an apostle in Paul's sense, I don't know if I would go that far. Maybe he's just wrapped under the umbrella of the we, as it were, in 1 Corinthians 9. At least it's something to think about and to ponder. So now we see that, again, that the apostle deserves his provisions. Verses 7 through 8, uh, he continues, he says, "...who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense." Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? 
Or does not the law also say these things? And of course, the law does say these things. By the way, the law here that he's referring to isn't just merely the very commandments of God, but it's probably referring to the whole Pentateuch. He's referring to the Old Testament Pentateuch by using the term law. And what's interesting is Paul does that very rarely because of the Judaizing tendencies that are present in Asia Minor and elsewhere. But apparently, Corinth, they weren't falling into these Judaizing tendencies the way those in Galatia were. But notice what Paul is saying is that those who, in fact, work, they should be, in fact, provided for. The compensation, in fact, to which Paul is referring to is not necessarily that of a salary, but that of provisions from the fruit of his labor as an apostle. Okay, now I have a couple passages. I think I, Larry, you had one, Deuteronomy 26, and then Pat, you had Proverbs 27, 18. We're just going to read these, and you can see where Paul got these ideas from. Deuteronomy 26, verse 6. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, and may he die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Hmm. Yeah, wow. And Proverbs 27:18, He who tends the fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who cares for his master will be honored. Yeah, it wasn't an interesting, I should make a slight correction. Notice here that the law then actually extends beyond just the Pentateuch, doesn't it? He's using it even with Proverbs. I just thought about that as you were saying that. What's interesting to me then is Paul's extending the law to apply to the whole Old Testament. What's interesting is, you know, today if you talk to Jewish people, they will often say that they do not hold the prophets as authoritative as they do the Pentateuch, right? And this may be a good passage to even think about using if you're witnessing to a Jew because here certainly Paul's extending the law even to Proverbs. Okay, so he's using Torah in the sense that it also is incorporating the law, the prophets, and the writings. That may be an implication here. Because certainly I think he's gathering these concepts from partly in Proverbs 27, 18. But here's the point that I want you to see here. Notice that Paul isn't necessarily saying that he demands a salary and, and benefits in the sense that you and I think of in the modern day. But rather what he's saying is he as an apostle has the right to glean from his work. In other words, to be supported in the sense that he is going to be fed and cared for by those who he's preaching to. And so I think that that is, um, and again, now today, how do we apply it today? Well, I think today we would have to look at salaries and wages and so forth for gospel workers because they're probably not going to live in your home indefinitely uh, or for any length of time and be fed that way. It's possible. But again, in that day, that's what it meant. It meant to be compensated through provisions. Now, Paul gives a lesser to greater argument that's very interesting. In 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 10, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? And then he answers the question. He says, Yes, for our sake it was written, Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. What's fascinating to me in this passage is that Paul is making a very interesting contention. He's contending that this, what that was written in Deuteronomy 25 was actually all about the apostle or the workers of the gospel themselves. And so the question I think that that raises is Paul changing the meaning of Deuteronomy 25.4 from its original context. And so some people would say, well, Paul can do that because he's an apostle. 
But is really, is it the fact that Paul is playing fast and loose with the original meaning of Deuteronomy 25.4? When you read Deuteronomy 25.4, I assure you it's probably concerning or talking about oxen. So how do we resolve this tension? Is, is Paul just merely saying, well, now it doesn't mean what it originally meant, but rather it means something completely different? I don't think so. I don't think Paul's challenging the original meaning But what he's doing is he's talking about a further implication and application that extends to even his day. And I'll give you evidence of that. So Paul is not addressing the original meaning, in my opinion, but rather the application. Paul is addressing the current application of the law to the people of God today. He says it extends today, and it means that if you are a gospel worker or a preacher, you should not be muzzled as the ox who treaded out the grain. In fact, you're worthy of being sustained. That's the idea. Let me show you another example where Paul does this very thing, and I think it'll be very clear. Again, Paul is not challenging the original meaning, but he's making an application. Let me show you in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses Israel as an example, and he concludes from the example of Israel. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And in fact, let me just turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read to you the way he uses them as an example. 1 Corinthians 10, start in verse 1 with me, if you will, if you have your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 10, 1, Paul says this. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And I'll just stop there. The point is, is now he's using Israel. They, in some sense, partook in the very means of grace that you and I partake in in the New Testament. So the point is, the meaning is that the Israelites, they were baptized into the Red Sea, They ate of the spiritual food, that is the manna. They drank of the spiritual rock, which was Christ, came from him, and yet they sinned and died. They did not apply the means of grace to their lives. And there's a very powerful application from this. It's that you and I, it's not sufficient merely to sit under the means of grace, but rather we must, in fact, believe in the means of grace. In other words, we have to believe when the word of God is preached to us, we have to believe it. When the Lord's Supper is where we're partaking in the Lord's Supper and we're remembering the things that the Lord has done and the fact that he's coming again, we have to apply that to ourselves. Okay, So it's not enough just to hear these things, but rather we have to apply them to ourselves. Otherwise, we as well will die in the wilderness, as it were, with no hope uh, from God. And that's the point. So the application that Paul is making then is he's not disputing the original meaning of the text, but rather he's just using it as an application. The Corinthians also were baptized, like the Jews, and they were partaking in the Lord's Supper, just as the Israelites ate and they drank, yet they were sinning by partaking in the table of the demons. Okay, that's the idea. So again, my point is, is relate this passage, and we're going to come to it again, to the passage that we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is not saying that in Deuteronomy 25.4, that passage originally was not about an oxen. What Paul is saying is, from lesser to greater. Certainly, if an oxen deserves to be cared for while it's working, how much more an apostle? 
That's the point that he's making. And so again, he's not changing the meaning. He's just making the application that should be obvious to all. Certainly if an ox is taken care of, certainly an apostle should be. That's the idea. So again, why is that important? Why am I making this distinction? Because we're living in a day and age, my dear brothers and sisters, where people want to say the apostle Paul changed the meaning to whatever he wanted it to be. And therefore, they can do the same. They're postmodern. We can't know. We can't know truth. We can change the meaning. Paul did it. Don't believe it. He didn't change the meaning. He was using an application. That's what I want you to see. Now, Paul gave the gospel for free. In verses 11 through 12, it says, If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Notice this phrase where he says, is it too much? This is what's called an apodosis. And the only reason I'm going to raise this idea is because sometimes when you're reading literature and in a, like a commentary, you'll see that come up, apodosis, apodosis. And I know I've talked about this before, but apodosis is always an if. And when you have an if, you have either a then statement or at least something that's implied to be a then statement. The then statement is the apodosis. So if we sowed, then it is, is it too much? Okay, so that's the apodosis. Well, this apodosis indicates that Paul is not merely giving the Corinthians an example of someone who lays down his personal rights for others, but Paul is contending with them over his apostolic rights. Do you see what I'm getting at? In other words, Paul isn't merely being an example. He's contending with them. Is it too much? Is it too much that I would do these things for you? And so the point is, is again, Paul is not merely saying, well, you know what, you have your rights and you abuse them, but I take my authority and I don't abuse it. No, he's actually contending with them because, again, if the Corinthians lose Paul, which they're doing because they're saying, what authority does he really have? If they lose Paul, they lose the gospel associated with Paul, and they're done. And so, ironically, Paul's defending himself is for their sake, not his. Isn't that ironic? The other thing I want to point out is this term share. It comes from meteco or medico. And it carries forward the agricultural concept from verse 10. Again, he has the right to share because they were sharing with others. It's the sharing in the crop. And so again, this is actually designed to cut, I think, the Corinthians to the heart. If you share your crop, as it were, with others, how much more should you want to share it with me, the apostle? And yet, not only were they stingy, but they actually used Paul's refraining from payment as evidence that he wasn't an apostle. Now, notice this phrase here that I have underlined, so that, anytime you see a so that, what do you have? You have a purpose statement. So what's the purpose statement here? So that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. That's why he turned down any payment. Again, he deserved the payment, but he turned it down so no one could claim that he was merely preaching out of selfish gain. So the purpose clause, unlike the itinerant philosophers of the day, these are the people that would travel around and fleece people by staying with them indefinitely, by taking money from them and and goods and services and so forth, and they would never leave. Well, they had a bad name. So Paul charged nothing to let the gospel be the stumbling block alone. So what Paul does in his life is he takes any stumbling block from himself so that when he proclaims the gospel, the only possible thing a person may stumble over is the gospel itself. Okay, you can't say, well, that Paul, he was just preaching out of sordid gain. Well, 
No, he was never paid. He takes away every... And that's one of his points when he gets into 1 Corinthians 9 later on that we'll come to next time. So again, the purpose clause, Paul wants the gospel to be the stumbling block, uh, nothing else. So finally, we see that the gospel workers, they do in fact earn their pay. In verses 13 through 14, it says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Notice where it says, Do you not know that these who perform these sacred services? More than likely, he's probably referring to the pagan temples because they also... Those who worked in the pagan temples, they ate from it. But he could also be referring to, for instance, the Levitical priesthood because they also got to partake in some of the sacrifices. For instance, you can read about that in Leviticus 7. But notice this, this idea that he says, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel. Again, he's appealing to the very words of Jesus during his earthly ministry that, in fact, a gospel worker is worth his wages. And where does he derive that from? Well, Matthew 10, but also Luke 10. In Luke ten seven it says, Stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you for the labor is worthy of his wages. Okay. So again, it's interesting when, when Paul uses the name of the Lord, he says, um, also as the Lord directed, we know that he's actually appealing to the earthly words of Christ himself. He often does that. Okay. Now let me give you a summary and then I'll open it up here. Paul made it very clear to the Corinthians that he as an apostle had every right to compensation for his work, he also made it clear that he deliberately forsook his rights so that there would be no hindrance to the gospel other than the gospel itself. A couple of points that I think of in this passage is, number one, we must always remember that gospel workers are deserving of our financial support. Some years ago, I had a friend who had us over for dinner, and I thought we were just having dinner, and then he approached us to support him. And what's sad is there was a little bit of me that felt like I had the bait and switch. And I don't think he meant to do that. I felt like I had gone into an Amway presentation. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, welcome over. And then, by the way, here's this drink. Isn't it great? Wouldn't you like to be part of the team? But you know what? I wasn't thinking that, you know what? This man deserves his wages. And it cut me to the heart. Probably a month later, I was actually studying this with a CBS, a community Bible study group. And I thought, you know, how insensitive. Here the guy's working his... um, tail end off, and I immediately was um, put off because I thought, well, you know, he must be out for selfish gain. No, a gospel worker deserves their wages. If we wouldn't muzzle an ox, we certainly shouldn't muzzle those who are preaching God's word. And so that I think that's one way that we can apply to our lives. Let's not be stingy with those who are preaching the gospel, those who are evangelists. Let's look to, for every opportunity to support them. And then number two, we must always be looking for hindrances, I believe, to the gospel in our ministries and daily lives. You know, there was a, a man who, um, his name is Ray Vanderlaan. Everybody ever heard that name? He has some tapes out that the world may know, or yeah, I think it's called the, that the world may know. And I remember him giving a message, and he had talked about the crusades. Remember Billy Graham? He has, um, when they go out and preach, they call it a crusade. Well, and I know we all have issues some, with some of the theology from decision today and so forth. But one of the issues that he brought up was the very fact that we'd use the term crusade and then go into perhaps a Muslim area where, in fact, now again, I'm not talking historically as far as, you know, maybe there was a reason why, in fact, 
we should have gone after the Muslim lands, not as a church, but as nations to rebuff them. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the issue of right and wrong in that sense. I'm merely saying when we go out as Christians and we have the term crusade, is that an, an unnecessary offense that we're giving to those who we're trying to reach with the gospel? And I think it's a valid point because, again, what did Paul do? He eliminated any unnecessary offense so that the gospel alone will be the, the, the only offense. And so we have to do that even with ourselves, I think, when we're proclaiming the gospel. I'm guilty of it because oftentimes, and this cuts me to the heart, I'll be witnessing to a guy at the workout club and I'll get distracted because of politics and I'll end up becoming a stumbling block because, again, do I believe I'm right on the, pol- the political issue? Yes, I think I do. But the issue that he needs to have settled is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and now I'm becoming a stumbling block unnecessarily, where I should just let the gospel be the stumbling block. And so maybe, brothers and sisters, this morning you have somebody that you're witnessing to who you also have put unnecessary stumbling blocks in their way. Maybe even go tell the person, say, you know what, I'm sorry we got off on this issue. I'll tell you what I'd really like to talk to you about. I'd like to talk to you about your need for a Savior, uh, something to that effect. So there's many ways to apply this passage. But with that, and by the way, I'm sorry I'm done a little early. If I got into the next section, it would have been over an hour. It was one of these deals where you have, if you go beyond verse 14, you have to do the whole whole chapter, and that would have been too long. But with that, I'll take your comments and questions. Keith. Yeah, one point that we brought up uh, earlier on this passage is that it's been used to justify the mandate or the demand that Christians must tithe. Oh, okay. And what's important, what's interesting in this passage is that Paul doesn't go to the Levitical 10% when he could. Yeah. And that's the most obvious one where he could say, you, you owe us as your Christian priests 10% like the Jews paid to the priestly service. What he does mm. is goes to an agricultural metaphor with a cow and just, just says it much softer that they just share in what they're doing. So the tithing isn't mandated here. It's, specific, it's, it's excluded from what he's talking about. It's not the major point. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, the major giving passage, in fact, is in 2 Corinthians 9, where God loves a cheerful giver. No longer is this mandate for the 10%. And in some regards, uh, we're now free because of the grace that God has freely bestowed upon us to give perhaps beyond that or perhaps less, but we're free. And that's a beautiful thing. But yeah, that's a great point. Um, Nowhere does he appeal to the tithe in saying, hey, you owe me. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Uh, Larry. Oh, I'm sorry, Rich. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see, just real briefly, that um, there's so many Christian services out there that are vying for money. Mm. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I get letters from my mom in the mail constantly. Hey, give to this, give to that. And you could you could literally go bankrupt, you know, by giving <laughs> to different organizations. Yeah. One thing I really like what Bob Dway said, and he said that we only give money to those who really understand the gospel and right. can per- portray the gospel because there's so many organizations out there that don't understand it. Yeah. A friend of these guys, they um, had a group from a, a guy from a group come over and, and he said, okay, give me the gospel. They wanted money for their, you know, for their support. Yeah. He goes, well, give me the gospel. And he couldn't do it. Hmm. And it was from a real well-known organization. So I'd say, please be careful when you give your money. Give it only to an organization that really understands the gospel and is able to portray it. 
Rich, that's great counsel. We also had someone from a ministry come over to our teens once when I was in teen ministry and was going to give the gospel and it ended up being a testimony not about Christ, who he is and what he has done, but about themselves. And very well said. I think that's great counsel. Yeah, if we're going to be giving money out, let's give it to those who are truly about the word and, and proclaim the word accurately, boldly, and lovingly rather than to, to people who miss it, distort it, and we have to be very, I think, discriminating against uh, or with our limited resources. I think we should be discriminating with them. Yeah, absolutely. Again, and that's the idea where the freedom comes into play. God loves a cheerful giver. And to those who proclaim the gospel well, I can cheerfully give to that. But to those who distort it, I would be begrudgingly giving to that. And so, yeah, let's not do that. Very good counsel. Larry. Back to your we were talking in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 3 through 6. You said Barnabas was under something of an umbrella covering. Yeah. Would that be considered, or can you equate that to being under Paul's author, uh, authorial headship covering? In other words... Yeah, that's kind of the idea that I would have, I guess. It's, it's just the idea that when Paul talks about, for instance, we right here, he's obviously referring to Barnabas um, and perhaps even more. But in some sense they then partake in the same benefits, not because they are themselves apostles, but because they're so closely associated with Paul and they are his helper. And so I think that it gives us understanding in Acts 14.14 when it says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul went out, that may give us some indication that it's not necessarily that Barnabas is an apostle in the sense that he holds the office. Do you see what I'm saying? But rather that he is so closely associated with Paul, he is wrapped into Paul, and so therefore he's under his umbrella. So kind of sense. like Paul the sheriff and Barnabas the deputy. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, very well said. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a possible. And again, I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that, but I wonder if that doesn't give us an inkling at least as to how we should think about it. Wayne. I uh, just want to point out that uh, another example of the same thing would be Timothy, his good younger friend Timothy. And uh, yeah. the letter he wrote to him, he said, you know, you stay in Ephesus and work on these problems. And he was, in, in, in essence, uh, Paul's representative there in Ephesus uh, That's right. as far as apostolic uh, work and yeah. with the church. Yeah, and so in some sense, if you mess with Timothy, you're messing with the apostle, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Sam. <clears throat> Another uh, prescriptive, I would, I would call it, about giving or sharing yeah. is Galatians 6, 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Well said. And, and as well, um, Paul continually is saying, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to be paid for the gospel because I don't want to hinder it. And then he, over there in Philippians 4:17, not that I seek the gift itself, because this, he's talking about the, the Philippians, they actually yeah. helped him. Uh, whereas in Macedonia they did not. Yeah. So he, he goes on to tell the Philippians, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Yeah, it's yeah. always for their account, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? The gospel is for their account, and the, any giving is for their account. And, yeah, so yeah, any stumbling block or perceived stumbling block he removed. In fact, that's the next section in 1 Corinthians 9 that we'll be talking about. That's when he gets into... for. Um, I became all things to all people so that by all possible means um, I may save some, or some may be saved, I think is how he says it. And the idea then is Paul is not, um, he is not taking himself and compromising the gospel in any way ever, 
but rather what he's doing is he's removing any hindrance, and that's exactly what you're pointing out there. Yep. We had one back there. Oh, yeah. I just want to mention that when Paul would even go into a new area to preach the gospel, he did not hold out his hand as a beggar for food or for monetary means. He was a tent maker. Tent maker, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he he supported himself with yeah. with a uh, occupation. That's right. So that that to me proves that he wasn't just uh, expecting people, uh, even if they became Christians, to pay for his needs. Well said. That's exactly right. And that's how he supported himself without having the need to always being uh, being supported by those who he's preaching to. Yeah, he was very industrious, wasn't he? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. That's right. That that would be a nice verse to preach on uh, in today's culture, wouldn't it? (laughs) If you don't work, you don't eat. Yeah. um, uh, Referring to the verse up there, or do only Barnabas and I have not the right to refrain from working, it's... uh, troublesome to me that in the NIV they really kind of switch it around a little bit. It says, or is it only I and Barnabas who must uh, work for a living? Now, the spirit is sort of there, but um, the idea that Barnabas came first to me is sort of significant, actually, because um, Mm. um, I think he would put Barnabas out first to identify the audience that he was speaking with, Mm. and whereas in the NIV they switch it around. And it's, I I don't know. That's interesting. You know what, I don't don't remember... How it is in the the Greek text. Normally, in the Greek text, word order means almost nothing other than emphasis. And so, perhaps there could be some way of emphasizing. Typically, if something is emphasized in Greek, it's the very first word in the Greek sentence. In Greek, they also have what are called post positives. That's the first. I'm sorry, it's the second word, but it's rendered first, like gar for four. So, oftentimes, you'll have, for instance, a post positive, but before that is the word to be emphasized. And so it'd be interesting. I don't recall. I would have to look, um, but maybe there is something to that. I don't know. Yeah, very interesting though. I have one other statement. They better take the mic away from me before I'm stoned. But uh, <laughs> I don't mean to give um, <clears throat> I don't mean to give uh, uh, stumbling blocks. I think we're giving it a bad rap a little bit because I'm um, and I'm not for sloppy evangelism. Don't get me wrong. I, sure. I don't think that should be sloppy. Yeah. But I think the law is a stumbling block. It is something Absolutely. that, and, and I think God's grace rushes in when the repentance happens. Uh, and so stumbling block, sometimes uh, one is to be a stumbling block. And one is to be something that, you you know, an un- unflaggable, uh, irrevocable presence. And uh, so my sin is horrible. It's a stumbling block, and i got to do something with that thing. Or God, well, you don't know what I'm saying? So I think we're I giving, think so. we're whitewashing, we're kind of... I think we're being a little bit too namby-pamby with that word, saying anything that's a stumbling block is not good. No, it may be very good, actually. Yeah, let me... Um, I think I know the flavor of where you're going here. The idea is, let's say we stand for righteousness, and the world says, well, how can you do that? You know, I'm not saying we um, accommodate our principles, our morals, or anything that has to do with the gospel itself. I'm saying, let's, if there's something stylistic... Does Billy Graham have to call himself a crusader when he goes out to a Muslim land? I don't see anything in the scripture where he does. I'd probably remove it. Why? Because I don't want it to be a hindrance to the gospel. I want the gospel out there. It's things like that. Now, if someone were to say, well, I'm not going to listen to you. You're pro-life. 
Well, I would say, well, you're darn tootin', I'm pro-life. And I would explain the scriptures to him. Do you see what I'm saying? So, again, it, what I'm saying is when it, we don't want to be an unnecessary hindrance does not mean we, com, we um, compromise on the morals that stem from God's law. And, and what I'm using also with the gospel, I'm assuming that one who gives the gospel is giving the law in the sense that it drives people as a tutor to the need for the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. So I'm assuming that in my, you know, let's let the gospel be the stumbling block. So is that is that kind of what you were driving at? Okay, yep. Anybody else? I, again, now, by the way, I... Um, believe next week we're going to have somebody i'm going to be gone i have to i had an obligation that i had set up a few months ago where i'm going to be preaching at another church that is having some trouble so be praying for me and be praying for this church and i know carl will be preaching but we're also going to have some guys that are going to be filling in for sunday school i know paul living i don't know if he's here today he's going to be doing some we have ben linker and some others that are going to be filling in and of course carl will be doing some as well so anyway I just wanted to let you know that ahead of time. Now, this morning we're going to be in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, talking about the submission of wives to their husbands. But before you gals all head for the exit, there's one verse that's very powerful for what you and I as men have to do as well. So ladies, there's something in it for you as well. So anyway, we'll see you all upstairs. Enjoy uh, your fellowship with one another.